Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 25. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. These are dangerous and precarious times in America. Times that'll have an impact on our country and our world forever. And we have a dangerous and reckless president whose actions will have an impact on our country forever. We're in an existential battle that will determine the future and how and if our country continues to exist as we know it. In many ways, America's in the fight of its life. Round one, fight! America is a street fighter. And yeah, that's the Street Fighter video game. America's a street fighter. Always has been, always will be. America is scrappy. America is crafty. America is tough. And America can take a punch. Whether it's Pearl Harbor or 9-11, America can take a hit, get up off the mat, rising up off the canvas, back from the brink, like The Undertaker. Or like Tyson Fury in the fight against Deontay Wilder. We rise up off the mat, encounter with a fireball, a leg sweep, or sometimes just a perfect block. Yeah, America is a street fighter, and one that's had a hell of a run. But this year, and ever since Trump got elected, the hits just keep on coming. Hit after hit, like haymaker punchers from a heavyweight boxer, or like bullets from a gun, tearing into our body politic. Punches and heat rounds, bruising the face of America and ripping into our flesh. Every single one taking a small piece out of our life meter, like Rayu in Street Fighter. Whether it's a punch, a bullet, or a fireball, every hit we take takes a little piece out of us. Some we can shake off, some break a bone. But every hit leaves an impact. An impact that will cut deep and hurt badly. An impact that will define our American experience forever. These times, man, they leave a mark that can't be erased, can't be undone, can't be lasered off. After the last few years of nastiness, division, war, and chaos, the wounds are serious. They're wounds that cut deep and leave scars that will remain forever. Some will be deep enough to cut to the core of our being. Some will go into our brain, into the heart, and into the blood. And others might be just a graze wound. And when and if the barrage of hits finally stops, if they don't kill us, we'll start the long process of healing, pushing toward the future, hoping we can be, like Hemingway wrote, stronger at the broken places. Hemingway famously wrote, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are stronger at the broken places. If we rally, if we dig deep, if we listen to our corner man and we study the tape, if we play it smart, and if we follow the advice of our doctor, if we take care of our body politic, we can recover. We can survive the barrage, heal our body, 
and emerge stronger at the broken places. And when we do, there will be marks on our body, on our body politic and on our actual bodies. And we may want to reflect and remember those hard moments and celebrate the good ones or remember those we've lost or commit to the future. We'll want to memorialize that time, that experience, that inspiration, that pain, that moment. We'll memorialize it in our stories and in our actions and often on our skin. These tumultuous times are leaving marks all over us, tattooing who we are. And that's what our guest has been powerfully channeling, shaping, and forecasting for decades. Like every guest we've had on this show, he's an iconic, important, and inspiring American. And he's one that's left a mark on hundreds of thousands of bodies all over the world, but also on our country's cultural body. He's shaping what America was, what it is, and what it will be. Scott Campbell's more than an artist. He's a storyteller. He's an oracle. He's an entrepreneur. He's an innovator. He's a tastemaker. He's a father. He's a traveler. And he's an activist. He's a true American success story and a true creative visionary. Scott Campbell was born in 1977 and grew up in Louisiana. From there, he went to the University of Texas to study biochemistry. He left that world, moved to San Francisco, and plunged into an entirely new frontier as he began leaving marks by tattooing. Starting at the lowest level of the bottom, sweeping floors and scraping to eat, Scott learned to become a master of the craft at Picture Machine, one of the oldest tattoo shops in California. And he rose up from there to become one of the single most influential and sought-after tattoo artists on the planet. He moved east to New York and built the now-legendary Save Tattoo in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And along the way, Scott built a client list that includes the most elite art and design and celebrity stars on the planet, people like Mark Jacobs, Heath Ledger, Josh Harnett, Orlando Bloom, Helena Christensen, and Penelope Cruz. He's also tattooed criminals inside a maximum security prison in Mexico, working people all across America, and Air Force Special Forces pararescue PJs in Afghanistan, immediately after some of the fiercest fighting they've ever seen. He's earned acclaim from fine art communities around the world for his work in mediums other than skin including intricately carved sculptures made out of U.S. currency, a series of watercolor paintings based on his experiences in that maximum security prison in Mexico City, and graphite drawings done on the inside of eggshells. Scott's groundbreaking work has been shown in galleries and some of the most revered collections and museums worldwide. He's been a visionary for tattooing, one that's helped lead the global movement of tattooing, and propelled the business and cultural wave all around it. To say he's only a tattoo artist would be like saying Jay-Z's only a rapper. Scott started a wine company, he's active in political causes, and founded and grown Bebo, one of the hottest cannabis brands on the planet. And with his talented wife, the dynamic actor Lake Bell, 
they're a powerful one-two punch of a family that's doing good work and doing good. Scott's a truly great and uniquely American artist visionary, a culture shaper, and now a business mogul. And he's definitely an angry American and one whose voice must be heard, especially right now. I sat down with him at the Classic Car Club in New York for the most interesting interview we've ever had on this show, one that will span so many elements of our culture and our world, and will definitely surprise and inspire you. And attention must be paid. But before we get to Scott, there's plenty in America that has me angry, and has many others angry, and should have everyone angry. There are a number of stories you need to know about or know more about that are impacting our country in critical ways right now and leaving a mark. And we'll start off with a new situation that's all about angry Americans, tens of thousands of them all across America. As you all know, the 2015 collective bargaining agreement expired at 11.59 p.m. last night. And we, we will inform General Motors that our membership has opted to go on strike this evening. That will be immediately following this press conference. This is a decision that as President, President Jones has said, we do not take this lightly. This is our last resort. It represents great sacrifice and great courage on the part of our members and all of us here at the table and in the plants across the country clearly understand the hardship that it may cause. But UAW members have never faltered in the fight for what is right and for what is just. And today we stand strong in saying with one voice, we are standing up for our members and for the fundamental rights of working class people in this nation. That's the UAW's Terry Didis. GM workers are angry. Thousands of GM workers are angry Americans, and they have a right to be. At midnight Sunday, the United Automobile Workers went on strike at General Motors, sending nearly 50,000 members at factories across the Midwest and South to the picket lines. UAW regional leaders in Detroit voted unanimously on Sunday to authorize a strike, the union's first such walkout since 2007. So there's new reason this week for America to be divided and stressed and to add new pressure to our economy, which continues to weaken. And as our country's tensions rise domestically, it's not getting any better internationally. Just when you thought John Bolton was out, and things might settle down in the Middle East, Iran is trending again. And again, we're on the edge of war. The Trump administration intensified focus on Iran this week, claiming that they're the likely culprit behind attacks on some important Saudi Arabian oil facilities over the weekend. Officials cited intelligence estimates to support the accusation and President Trump's warning that he was prepared to take military action. The government released satellite photos showing what officials said were 17 points of impact at several Saudi energy facilities from strikes they said came from the north or northwest. That would be consistent with an attack coming from the direction of the Persian Gulf, Iran, or Iraq, rather than from Yemen, 
where the Iranian-backed Houthi militia claimed responsibility for the strikes operates. But here's what Trump added. Mr. President, do you still think it's the responsibility of the Saudis to defend themselves? Oh, or think, should the United States be? I think States it is be? certainly the responsibility of them to do a big, a big deal of their defense, certainly. Uh, I also think it's the responsibility of the Saudis to, uh, if somebody like us, which are the ones, uh, are going to help them, uh, they, I know that monetarily, will be very much involved in paying for that. This is something that's much different than other presidents would mention, John. But the fact is that the Saudis uh, are going to have a lot of uh, involvement in this if we decide to do something. Uh, They'll be very much involved, and that includes payment, and they understand that fully. But they're going to be, uh, look, they're very upset. They're very angry. Uh, They know pretty much what we know. They know pretty much where they came from. And we're looking for the final checkpoints. Mm -hmm. And I think you won't be surprised to see who did it. But America's troops are not a mercenary force to be hired by Saudi Arabia. Our president doesn't seem to understand or respect that. And he's saying we're locked and loaded. More dangerous talk in dangerous times. And Trump, President Mayhem, he's not helping. So in addition to the local stresses you may see if you live in the Midwest or South due to the GM strike, you may now also have to be concerned about whether your kids or your neighbor's kids might deploy to Iran. Oh yeah, your gas prices are likely to go up too. And your oil prices, just in time for fall and the upcoming winter, just to add a bit more stress to the system. And on Wednesday night, breaking news, Trump named Robert C. O'Brien, the State Department's special envoy for hostage affairs, to replace Bolton and be his fourth national security advisor. That's his fourth just in his first term. As the White House continues to struggle to offer any kind of coherent response to Iran, we have another new guy in the mix. And his resume is light, to say the least. He's a little-known Los Angeles lawyer who's now thrust into a maelstrom of foreign policy challenges, none more pressing than the crisis with Iran. And Trump rolled O'Brien out in the media on the tarmac of the Los Angeles International Airport, where he was traveling between fundraisers. Robert's been fantastic. We know each other well. Uh, And uh, maybe, uh, Robert, say a few words, please. Great. Thank you. Look, it's a privilege to serve with the president and to, uh, we look forward to, to another year and a half of peace through strength. We've had tremendous foreign policy successes uh, under President Trump's leadership. I expect those to continue. Uh, we've got a number of challenges, but there's a great team in place with Secretary Pompeo and uh, Secretary Esper, Secretary Mnuchin and others. I look forward to working with them and, uh, and working with the president to uh, keep America safe and continue to rebuild uh, our military and uh, and really get us back to a peace through strength posture that'll keep uh, the American people uh, uh, safe from the many challenges around the world today. Peace through strength? How's that been going so far? I'm not feeling a lot of peace. And the world's not seeing a lot of strength. They're hearing big talk and seeing America continue to overstretch and overreach, which brings us to our forever wars that might expand into Iran soon, But you probably didn't see they're continuing in numerous countries around the globe, including Somalia. Did you know we were at war in Somalia? Well, this week, the U.S. carried out its 41st airstrike in Somalia this year. 
This one targeting al-Shabaab in the northwest of Kizmayu, the lower Juba province. That's according to U.S. Africa Command. But we've carried out 41 airstrikes in Somalia this year. And as our forever wars continue in Somalia, this week in Fergadistan, another soldier was killed in action. Sergeant First Class Jeremy W. Griffin was a Green Beret killed by small arms fire. He was 41 years old and from Greenbrier, Tennessee. He served as a Special Forces Communications Sergeant with 3rd Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group out of Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington State. Sergeant First Class Griffin was on his fourth combat deployment. According to Army Chief of Staff James McConville, he was a father, he was a husband, He was a son, he was a Green Beret, and he was an American hero. He was a hero. First, third, seventh, and tenth special forces groups have all lost soldiers killed in action in Afghanistan in 2019, and fifth group lost one in Syria. The death of Sergeant First Class Griffin brings the number of U.S. troops killed in action in Afghanistan this year to 17 and more than 100 other American personnel have been wounded in combat in 2019 alone. And that'll leave a mark on all the families and on their communities. And that's a mark that can never be healed. Another kind of devastation that's hitting communities and families all across America is the opioid crisis. This week, Purdue Pharma filed for bankruptcy. Purdue Pharma, if you don't know, is a drug manufacturer largely responsible for launching the nation's epidemic of opioid addiction through its sale of the highly profitable and highly addictive painkiller, OxyContin. The Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing is expected to lead to the destruction of the company that is most closely identified with the epidemic, mostly because of its role in leading the sales of the narcotic pain pills. The company used aggressive and allegedly misleading sales tactics to push physicians to prescribe millions of doses of its dangerously addictive pills. The company's move to get financial shelter is part of a tentative settlement with thousands of litigants. There are thousands of them. And it'll shift the focus to new fighting over how potential proceeds will be divvied up by communities reeling under the burden of addiction and overdose deaths. Now, under the settlement announced last week, More than 2,000 small government plaintiffs and 24 states have agreed to the dissolution of the company and a contribution from the Sacklers, that's the family that owns the company, valued at 10 to 12 billion. But the settlement valuation is in dispute and a number of states have balked at the terms. Will they be held accountable or will they walk? Will this be like the big banks after the mortgage crisis that got government bailouts while millions of Americans lost their homes? Or is this going to be different? It'll only be different if we demand it. And that we must, my friends. Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family must pay. Just as so many families all across America have paid in ways that it can never be reversed and in wounds that can never be covered. Which is something the Democrats know a little thing about. They love exposing their wounds, showing all their weaknesses, and most of all, eating their own. Now, as a politics nerd, I love the debates, despite all their flaws, and I look forward to them almost as much as football. 
the last Democratic debate felt like the party finally went back to a more moderate place at times. But this one, it swung pretty far back into being notably the left again. And the Dems continue to eat their own. And Biden had a particularly bad debate, looking really shaky. And this one answer in particular was bad. What responsibility do you think that Americans need to take to repair the legacy of slavery in our country? Well, they have to deal with the, the, look, there is institutional segregation in this country. And from the time I got involved, I started dealing with that. Redlining, banks, making sure that we are in a position where, look, talk about education. I propose that what we take is those very poor schools, the Title I schools, triple the amount of money we spend from 15 to 45 billion a year, give every single teacher a raise, an equal raise of getting out the $60,000 level. Number two, make sure that we bring in to help the students, the, the teachers deal with the problems that come from home. The problems that come from home, we need, we have one school psychologist for every 1,500 kids in America today. It's crazy. The teachers are kind. I'm married to a teacher. My deceased wife is a teacher. They have every problem coming to them. We have to make sure that every single child does, in fact, have three, four, and five-year-olds go to school. School, not daycare. School. We bring social workers into homes of parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, want, they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone. Make sure the kids hear words. This was really bad, troublingly bad, no denying it. Biden also said he would pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan, but insists that the Pakistanis should provide bases for the U.S. to conduct counterterrorism because the U.S. needs jumping off points. Well, that whole Pakistani point was a first. And things got worse for Biden this weekend. As the corn pop video emerged, you didn't think you were going to walk into this week hearing about a guy named corn pop. Well, here you go. This was the diving board area, and I was one of the guards, and there weren't a lot of, there was a three-meter board, and you fell off sideways, you landed on the damp, uh, the darn cement over there. <laughs> and Corn Pop was a bad dude, and he ran a bunch of bad boys. And I did, yeah, he, and back in those days, to show how things have changed, one of the things you had to use, if you used pomade in your hair, you had to wear a bathing cap. And so he was up on the board, wouldn't listen to me. I said, hey, Esther, you, off the board, or I'll come up and drag you off. Well, he came off, and he said, I'll meet you outside. My car, this was mostly, these were all public housing behind it. My car, there was a gate out here. I parked my car outside the gate. And I, he said, I'll be waiting for you. He was waiting for three guys in straight razors. Not a joke. There was a guy named Bill Wright, Mouse, the only white guy, and he did all the pools. He was the mechanic. And I said, what am I going to do? He said, come down here in the basement where mechanics, where, where, where all the pool f- f- filter is. You know, the chain, there used to be a chain that went across the deep end. And he cut off a six-foot length of chain. He folded up. He said, you walk out with that chain. And you walk to the car and say, you may cut me, man, but I'm going to wrap this chain around your head. I said, you kidding me? He said, no, if you don't, don't come back. And he was right. So I walked out with the chain and I walked up to my car and they had stepped those days used to remember the straight race. You'd bang them on the curb, get them rusty, put them in a rain barrel, get them rusty. And I looked at him, but I was smart then. I said, first of all, I said, 
When I tell you to get off the board, you get off the board, and I'll kick you out again. But I shouldn't have called you, Esther Williams. I apologize for that. I apologize, but I didn't know that apology was going to work. He said, you apologize to me? I said, I apologize for that. Not for throwing you out, but I apologize for what I said. He said, okay, close the straight razor, and my heart began to beat again. Yeah, Corn Pop was a bad dude. Rusty straight razors, young Joe Biden lifeguarding at an all-black pool and facing down Corn Pop with a chain wrapped around his fist. Holy shit. Yeah, his heart did beat again, but he's having some challenges. And the Dems are poking at him daily, hoping or maybe worrying out loud that that heart might not beat much longer. So the Dems spent most of the night hitting their own hitting each other on obscure healthcare nuances that most people don't understand while Trump was smiling. And it looks like Julian Castro is taking the mantle from Bill de Blasio and Eric Swalwell as the single most aggressively annoying candidate on the stage. It was not a winning strategy, but here was Julian Castro. You know, I also want to recognize uh, the work that Bernie has done on this. Uh, and of course, uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to President Barack Obama. Uh, of course, I also work for President Obama, uh, Vice President Biden. And I know that the problem with your plan is that it leaves 10 million people uncovered. Now, on the last debate stage in Detroit, you said that wasn't true. When Senator Harris brought that up, there was a, a fact check of that. And they said that was true. Uh, you know, I grew up with a grandmother who had type 2 diabetes, and I watched her condition get worse and worse. Uh, but that whole time she had Medicare. Uh, I want every single American family to have a strong Medicare plan available. If they choose to hold on to strong, solid private health insurance, I believe they should be able to do that. But the difference between what I support and what you support, Vice President Biden, is that you require them to opt in. And I would not require them to opt in. They would automatically be enrolled. They wouldn't have to buy in. That's a big difference because Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would they not. They do not have to buy in. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. to buy in. If she qualifies for Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy You're forgetting that. I said anyone I mean, like look, your grandmother who like, has no money. We need she a would, healthcare system you're automatically that automatically enrolled. enrolls people regardless of whether they choose to opt in or not. If you lose your job, for instance, his, his health care plan would not automatically enroll you. You would have to opt in. My health care plan would. That's a big difference. I'm fulfilling, fulfilling the legacy of Barack Obama, and you're not. I'll be surprised to him. That blew up in his face, and Trump was definitely laughing. In other news on the debate, Bernie had nothing to say about Afghanistan and Iraq except to talk about his votes, and still tried to portray his time at the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee as a good thing. Newsflash, it was not. Truth is that Bernie Sanders was the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee chairman during the biggest scandal in VA history and the scandal that brought down VA Secretary Shinseki. I said it then, and I believe it now about Bernie Sanders. I told the New York Times, his ideological perspective blurred his ability to recognize the operational reality of what was happening at the VA. The reality was Bernie Sanders was one of the last people to publicly recognize the gravity of the situation.
And Sanders got SVAC chairman because as an independent, he agreed to caucus with the Democrats. They had to give him a chairman spot. And the VA, that was the only one left. Nobody would have otherwise picked a non-veteran anti-war socialist to be the chair of the Veterans Committee. That's the truth. So I wouldn't be giving him credit for being a fantastic chairman. In contrast, from the debates, credit where credit is due. There was the best focus on veterans I've ever seen on a debate stage, and it was by Cory Booker. I want to switch because we don't have crowded debate stage. We were talking about Afghanistan and Iraq. It, it, it annoys me that we had a conversation about our troops overseas, and we didn't say one word about veterans in our country. We have a shameful reality in America that we send people off to war, and they often come home with invisible wounds, hurts, and harms. They're disproportionately homeless. You hear stories about women waiting for months for gynecological care through the VA. It is very important that as we, as a country, understand that we are not going to solve every problem with this outrageous increased militarism, that we also make sure that we stand up for the people that stood for us. We end our national anthem with home of the brave. It's about time we make this a better home for our brave. That was good. And it was even more impressive and admirable because he didn't get a question about it. He forced the issue in and he nailed it. Altogether, the national security segment lasted only about 15 minutes out of three hours. And it was garbage. Every single answer except Mayor Pete's comments on the authorized use of military force was terrible. And this was an important moment for Mayor Pete. You know, I served under General Dunford way under General Dunford in Afghanistan. (laughs) And today, September 12th, 2019, means that today you could be 18 years old, old enough to serve, and have not been alive on 9-11. We have got to put an end to endless war. And the way we do it is see to it that that country will never again be used for an attack against our homeland. And that does not require an open-ended commitment of ground troops. Let me say something else, because if there's one thing we've learned about Afghanistan, from Afghanistan, it's that the best way not to be caught up in endless war is to avoid starting one in the first place. And so when I am president, an authorization for the use of military force will have a built-in three-year sunset. Congress will be required to vote, and a president will be required to go to Congress to seek an authorization. Because if our troops can summon the courage to go overseas, the least our members of Congress should be able to do is summon the courage to take a vote on whether they ought to be there. By the way, we also have a president right now who seems to treat troops as props, or worse, tools for his own enrichment. We saw what's going on with flights apparently being routed through Scotland just so people can stay at his hotels. I'll tell you, as a military officer, the very first thing that goes through your mind, the first time you ever make eye contact with somebody that you were responsible for in uniform, is do not let these men and women down. This president is doing exactly that. I will not. Props to Mayor Buttigieg for hitting that one and for hitting the Air Force flight rerouting shit that we've talked about in the past. Good moment for him and a layup chance for him to talk about his personal service. Now, note, the only other two vets running were not on the stage last week, Tulsi Gabbard and Admiral Joe Sestak, all of which I openly invite to join me as a guest on this show. Now, as you may have heard in that clip, 
the crowd was pretty loud last week. Too loud. And as much as I love a good protest, protesters stop the show for a good five minutes with no real impact. So debates should not have live audiences. It makes for better TV, but worse debates every single time. Bottom line on the debate last week, it won't change much. The biggest impact may be how it knocked out the candidates that didn't make the stage. And in the end, biggest losers, Julian Castro for that move on Biden, primetime cable shows that lost ratings, and maybe Thursday night football that was on at the same time. Biggest winners, Cory Booker had a good debate. Healthcare nerds, they definitely love this. And Trump, because every time the Democrats eat their own, it's good for Trump. And right now, the Democratic primary is kind of like the first few weeks of the NFL. Everyone still thinks they have a shot. Hearts have not yet been broken. Everyone still has hope. But that's about to end for candidates and for NFL fans. Everyone's still rooting for their home team, no matter how unlikely, especially among Democratic activists and fundraising leaders. Lots of gay people are rallying behind Mayor Pete. Lots of people of color are rallying behind Kamala Harris. Lots of old white people are rallying behind Biden. Politics in America is always about identity politics, and it's always about race, and it's always about class, real and aspirational. Like the people who vote for Trump because they hold out hope in the often distorted American dream that everyone can be rich if you work hard enough or if you play the lottery. All you need is a dollar and a dream. And right now, there's still hope. Right now, Jacksonville Jaguar fans and Andrew Yang fans, New York Jets fans and Cory Booker fans, Oakland Raiders fans and Julian Castro fans, XFL or Arena League fans and Marion Williamson supporters. But their hearts will soon be broken. It'll again go as it often does. It'll be the Patriots again. That means Trump. And maybe it'll be the Cowboys again in Biden. But the reality will soon set in, in the NFL and in the Democratic primary. And just to set the goalposts, the Democratic National Committee has announced that the next debate will be held on October 15th. The New York Times and CNN are going to host, and so far, 11 presidential candidates have qualified. And here they are. Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beta O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Tom Steyer, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang. Sorry, folks. No Marion Williamson. She's out. And so are any others whose names you didn't hear. Also out. A reminder. Mexico. Mexico is out in... Paying for the wall. Mexico's not paying for the wall because our troops are paying for the wall. As we've covered here at length, the troops are going to pay for the wall through a $3.6 billion cut to our defense budget. And we're getting new details about this and finding out more about the impact. There's a new report from the Air Force that says that Trump's border wall will actually risk our national security. The report compiled by the Air Force and obtained by NBC News details the importance of each of the 51 military projects chosen by the Trump administration to lose their funding. And here's one example. The Inserlik Air Force Base in Turkey. The entry control point at the main gate is, quote, degrading and not properly configured to provide proper protection for pedestrian and vehicle passage. The Air Force report says, adding that there has been, quote, a higher threat environment since the U.S. began operating in Syria. 
The report goes on to say, security breaches have increased since the base began Operation Inherent Resolve support. If not funded, the main gate remains vulnerable to hostile penetration in the midst of contingency operations and an increased terrorist threat. So, we'll fund hundreds of miles of a wall on the border of Mexico, but not the wall on our airbase in Turkey. Great. And more reason to be outraged as we get more details. Fort Bragg is among the North Carolina military bases that are going to take an $80 million hit to fund Trump's border wall. The affected projects in North Carolina include $40 million for a new battalion complex and an ambulatory care center at Camp Lejeune. It also includes a canceled $32 million elementary school at Fort Bragg. And these projects join the cuts at Florida bases that were nearly destroyed by last year's hurricane season. And a new middle school for Kentucky's Fort Campbell and a new fire station for Marine Corps Base in South Carolina. That's a lot of people impacted with tattoos. A lot of mean dudes who are going to remember this shit come election time. And they're going to want to tattoo the ballot box. And I think many of them will be turning against Trump, if only for this. And just as I've been warning, these cuts are going to leave a mark. They're going to leave a cut, a broken bone, or a nasty bruise. The kind of bruise that NFL players take pretty often, especially QBs. But their egos are usually tougher to bruise. But there's no QB in the world who wouldn't have felt beat up if they experienced what one QB in particular has been experiencing for the last couple of years. No, not Kaepernick. He's still a great mystery man. And who knows if he'll ever get a shot again. But if you're the Dolphins, for example, at this point, why the hell not? That would be unexpected. But another leadership change that did happen, that was unfortunately expected, one that hits a leader pretty hard, a leader who's just about the last guy in the world you'd expect to get a tattoo, Eli Manning. So this week, it finally happened. The Giants, after an embarrassing loss to the Bills at home, have decided to bench two-time Super Bowl MVP Eli Manning. Rookie number one draft pick Daniel Jones will start on Sunday versus Tampa. The Giants putting him through this in this way is just messed up. He deserves better. Nothing the Giants have done in my entire life pisses me off more than the way they've handled this. It's just too early for Jones, but even more importantly, it's the wrong way to treat Eli, the wrong way to handle all of it. And it's more chaos. Again, the problem is not Eli. It's Coach Shermer and the entire upper leadership of the organization. The fish rots from the head. And I hope Jones is amazing, but it'll never change how they mishandled all this. And it's just not right. And it's not the Giants way. People who already want to replace Eli with Jones are like people who want Biden to drop out. They're missing the bigger picture. This Giants defense and beating Trump is the priority that is more urgent and more disastrous than anything else. Whether you're the Giants or the Democrats, focus on the existential threat first. For the Giants, get every snap you can out of Eli. Let Jones sit, let him learn, let him be protected for as long as possible. If he's going to be our QB for a decade, there's no rush. Especially with this questionable line and shitty wide receivers, you don't throw your franchise's future into this mess if you don't have to. Don't let the urgent overtake the important. 
there's no no other option but just to handle it and uh, do my job, support uh, support my teammates, support the Giants, and you know do what I you know can do to try to help uh, uh, you know go into football games. And, and right now that's uh, you know getting Daniel and helping him and and uh, supporting him. That's Eli Manning hitting many of the themes we've hit on this show over the weeks. Even in the hard times, Eli's owning the tone, being thoughtful and respectful, and even now, being a helper. If there was ever an NFL QB who might have watched Mr. Rogers, it's Eli Manning. And even now, at the worst time in his career, he's looking out for others, for the future, and for the youngsters, and for the team. Even now, Eli is a helper. Just as he's been in the community throughout his career, you may not like his play, but you have to respect his leadership and his example and his commitment to others. And whether you like sports or not, it's been a spectacle. Speaking of sports spectacles that are bigger than sports, this weekend, Tyson Fury had an epic heavyweight boxing clash against Otto Whalen. It was a fantastic fight, gritty and full of heart, and one of the best fights I can remember without a single knockdown. One for the ages. And Tyson Fury is a name you should know or will know soon. He's a native of Great Britain named after Mike Tyson and was on top of the world as the heavyweight boxing champion before falling into deep depression, drugs, and alcohol. He was suicidal and almost died. But he's been on the comeback, and he's become a vocal advocate for people with mental health illness and injury. And he's a fascinating and I think inspiring guy to watch. And it was an incredible fight that Fury almost lost. He overcame a bloody cut to his right eye to pound out a unanimous decision over the Swedish opponent and set up a lucrative heavyweight rematch with Deontay Wilder. Whalen was a massive underdog and fought a really gritty and respectable fight. Fury remained unbeaten in 29 fights and retained his claim to the lineal heavyweight championship against a fighter who was little known, but gave the big Englishman all he could handle. And in the end, Tyson Fury took the mic to do what only Tyson Fury can do. Firstly, I just want to say thank you to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for giving me the power, the strength, and giving me the victory on this special weekend. Secondly, big shout out to Bob Arum, top rank, Jimmy Patero, ESPN, and Kevin Mayer. And uh, after that, I want to say big congratulations to Otto. I just want to say rest in peace to his father. I know he'd be very, very proud of the performance that Otto Wallin just did. The great Swede, the Viking warrior. So if you haven't heard, heavyweight boxing really is back. And boxing is a sport that shows what taking shots is all about. It's a sport filled with bruising and chances to overcome. And it's also a sport filled with tattoos. Fury's opponent in the massive upcoming fight is American Deontay Wilder. And he's covered with tattoos. In the ring, Deontay Wilder spends hours training for his next fight. Outside of it, he has spent days under the needle, literally. And you're, you're covered with them. You know about how much time to put in. Oh my goodness. You know, one time I, I thought about how many hours I have on me and, uh, and I, 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 have, I have thousands of hours on me. Tattoos have become part of his life. He got his first tat at the age of 19, a pair of praying hands holding rosary. From that point, 
I, I see how good it made me feel. It was like a therapy more than just uh, a style or, or something putting on my skin. You feel the ink kind of tells a story of your life? Most definitely. It tells it tells an a, a untold story about myself and um, the things I've been through, the things I've liked, the uh, different, different prayers I like, different sayings in my life that I vibe by. Those prayers include Psalm 27 on his back. If he had to pick a favorite one, it's of him and his daughter holding hands after she overcame spina bifida. And I call it the road to success and we're going off into some clouds. She was looking towards me to be her strength and her rock to get through her situation with spina bifida going to the doctors. The WBC championship belt on his thigh was the last time he went under the needle, but he's making plans for just one more. Once I collect all the belts, I'm gonna put them all next to each other and uh, that'll be it for me. The ink tells Deontay Wilder's story. The ink tells the story of his daughter. The ink tells the story of millions of Americans and millions of people all around the world. The ink might tell your story. Every tattoo is about a time, a moment in time. And every tattoo tells a story. Maybe there's a story you've always wanted to tell in the ink, but just haven't pulled the trigger on. But the ink tells a story. And the ink tells a story of America. Like jazz, rock and roll, and hip-hop like basketball and UFC, and now, like weed. The influence of the American tattoo movement has now spanned the globe. In this episode, we're making a choice. Taking a shot, biting our lip, and dipping the needle in the ink. And of course, we're laying down the four eyes. It's an eagle, globe, and anchor of integrity. It's a memorial to a loved one of information. It's a hidden mark just beneath your underwear of impact. And it's a sleeve of inspiration. You sure you want to get this? Here we go. This will leave a mark. This is permanent. This is forever. This is Angry Americans, episode 25. Americans, inspired Americans, all Americans, welcome back to the Manhattan Classic Car Club for an interview I am really, really excited about. Um, the great Scott Campbell is in the house. Oh man, the great. The great. You are great, man. We, and, hang on, let me get my dad on the line so he can hear this. <laughs> we, could, we could do that. I don't know if I have the technology to do that, but we'll try. Um, but dude, I, many reasons I've been excited to talk to you, but as I was telling the crew before you got here... You and I are kind of this next generation situation where we've kind of been friends over text for going on a couple years now. 
but never actually met in person until today. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've always like respected you and admired you. I consider us close. I consider us friends, yeah. even though the handshake didn't happen until today. Right. Yeah. Which is like yeah. a sign of our times, yeah. right? But we have a lot of friends in common and I've been respecting and admiring your work for a long time as well. And go ahead, please. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, likewise. Yeah. It's um, I've always, you know, I've been seeing what you do for far, especially for veterans and, and, you know, first servicemen and, and uh, yeah, for a long time trying to figure out a way to help support that cause. So, yeah, yeah. I want, I want to get into that. And one thing I always ask folks is what they want to drink. And we're, we're recording this late morning. So you're sticking with water, but you said something else, which was interesting. And I think reflective of the work that you do, you, you don't drink coffee or you can't drink coffee because yeah, it, caffeine it messes with your hands. And yeah. I get jittery. And then, and then those lines start to wiggle and then my whole career takes a dive. I gotta, I gotta keep a steady hand. Or it could be a whole nother line from you, right? <laughs> of only when you're doing coffee. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's, I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, but yeah, no, I haven't done caffeine in so many years that now when I do have it, I mean, you know, like on road trips, if I need to stay awake, I'll have three sips of gas station coffee and it's basically like doing math. I'm yeah. so sensitive to it. <laughs> I hear you. I, that's why I drink so much. <laughs> yeah. um, you're back in New York and you've been, you moved to LA. Yeah. Right. But how's it feel to be back in New York, man? Because you, you built a business here. You know, this was home for you for, you know, over a decade. Yeah. It's, how's it feel coming back? It's great. I mean, I, I, you know, I come back to New York Honestly, like within an hour of, of landing here, I texted my wife and I was like, man, Nova's going to love this place. My daughter's name is Nova. I was like, she's going to love this place because she's just like, my daughter is built for New York. She just her the way her brain works, the level of stimulus she requires, like her like sharpness and wit. Like, yeah, I was like, I can't wait to unleash her on this town. But, uh, but yeah, but it's, I'm excited to come back once the kids are old enough to like ride the subway and stuff like we'll 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 have our stint with new york again and our kids are almost the same age your kids are four and two, two and mine four, yeah. are four and six months and you know testament to how i was a little scattered this morning i accidentally texted you a video of my kid that i was supposed to send to my wife as she was getting on a plane which is not a big deal because you get it right oh, like totally. you're, you're deep like, in great you're, let's do kid you're photos. deep I'll in little kid videos. world like i yeah, am right? like, let's do it yeah no i my life is shockingly domestic it, it is. But it's also, I don't know about you, but it's also, for me, just the absolute best thing ever. It's the best pain in the ass ever. Yeah, like all the cliches are true. It, it's right. it's really, um, yeah, higher highs, lower lows, but I'm thrilled to be on the roller coaster. Yeah, and, and my friend Willie Geist, who was our first ever guest, gave me a really, really great insight. He just said, it just keeps getting better. Yeah. And I, when he said it at the time, I hadn't even had my first son yet, but it really, for me, is true. Every time, like, this age is so awesome, it evolves into another yeah. level. Well, yeah, the, right? you're, you know, your kid's born and you're like, oh my God, I love this thing. But really, you don't know each other. You're just legally obligated to keep this thing alive. You know, you're just like, like, wow, I guess it's beautiful. I think so. But then, you know, four years down the line, that little larva is like coming home and like telling you jokes that truly bring tears to your eyes. And that's when it's like, I fucking love this person is your daughter but, in the joke thing my son is into yeah, the joke thing yeah right now. she tells knock knock jokes that are the worst knock knock jokes you've terrible, ever heard absolutely terrible but i dying laugh it's yeah. the best thing i've ever heard and yeah. there's a, a guy in the planes movie um that 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 always says like I, I switch my tail at you and he says joke you make joke and that's become actually the funniest thing my son does is he tries to do his portrayal of 
the chupacabra, the guy who flies around <laughs> the planes, and says, "You make joke, you make joke." Yeah. So we sound like you know two weirdos running around New York City with a bad Mexican accent. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it's they. They're still figuring out the structure of jokes. Although my son, who's two, um, I'm so impressed at how advanced his sense of humor is because he, like, right, like he'll fart, and I'll be like, "Ozzy, what was that?" And he'll be like. Dad, uh, fart. So he already knows <laughs> He's already you shit. that it's funny to blame your farts on someone else. I was like, that's pretty good. That's, that's pretty deep. advanced. That's yeah. deep. But your kids are growing up around two amazingly talented artists. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I, I wanted the show to, to be about going deep with folks who are inspiring, important, iconic Americans. And I think you have really come to define and kind of redefine you know, this industry of, of tattoo, but so much more now. And when we were, you know, downstairs chopping it up a little bit, we started to get into that. Um, but one thing I wanted to go specific on is I didn't know until we were texting that you've actually gone all the way to Afghanistan. And, yeah. And we were going back and forth and you said, oh, you're a PJ. And I said, yeah, I'm a PJ, but Paul Joseph, not not para-jumper. Yeah. Because you actually had been with PJs yeah, in I, Afghanistan. I spent a bit of time in Afghanistan um, with uh yeah squadron 212 this a group of pjs um that were at bagram at the time and really was like a pivotal life experience i mean i mean god i could i could talk for hours just on that you know because i i'm you know like i grew up in a hippie family in louisiana you know what i mean like no i nobody would like like I never understood why people would go to war, why people would enlist. Um, I had an uncle who was a Navy SEAL during the Vietnam, um, you know, and he was fucked up from it for my whole childhood. You know, I just remember he was like a severe alcoholic and like had really, you know, had like rage issues and, you know, and everybody was like, oh, it's like, you know, kind of like alluded to this like big thing he went through, but I never yeah. knew it. Like, it, so I, I never really understood you know, what it meant to be in the military. And and then, yeah, here I found myself some artsy fartsy little Brooklyn hipster kid, you know, landing in like full body armor at Bagram Air Force Base and all of a sudden being like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, I don't even know why we're in Afghanistan. I don't know any, like what, why did I think this was a good idea? And um, a lot of soldiers probably wondering the same shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. I was like in the gym, just like, hey guys. And they're like, what the fuck is this? Bullshit? But I, um, you know, I went there because, you know, I've been tattooing for 20 years. And when I started tattooing, it was very much like a underground, you know, kind of fringe culture that was, you know, it felt very like special and insular. And I was really part of this like family. Um, and then I saw it explode into, you know, reality shows and mall culture and, you know, fashion runways, um, you know, which like I'm partly to blame for, you know what I mean? Like I've, I've done a lot of fashion stuff with, you know, Louis Vuitton handbags and design, like, I've, but, but I kind of, you know, here was this thing that I loved and I couldn't get angry at the world for loving it also, but I really wanted to get back to tattooing that had true emotional value, you know, that I really felt like I was connecting with people in a way that was useful to them. Um, and I had, I had done a few projects where I would go and tattoo in prisons. Um, I spent, you know, a few months in a, a prison in Mexico City um, working with inmates there and tattooing them. 
and a buddy of mine and I, I were like, what if like, what if I went to go tattoo people in the front lines of a war? You know, like what, like I just emotionally want to know what's valuable to them. Like what, what symbols, what language, what, you know, what's going through their head in a way, like what can I document on them that will help, you know, give them something. And eight days after saying that out loud, we, we were in Afghanistan. Really? And uh, yeah. And so we, yeah, wandered around. They didn't know like the, the press officer who was basically like our chaperone, making sure we didn't see anything we weren't supposed to see or touch anything we weren't supposed to touch. Had no idea what to do with me. They were, they were just like, I don't know. There's some baggage handlers with tattoos. You want to go talk to the baggage handlers? And we're like, okay. And then we were, we were driving around and I saw these guys. I was like, who are those guys? What do they do? Because they just like felt different. You know, I was like, there's something, there's some magic juju around those guys. Who's that? Yeah. And they're like, oh, those are the PJs. And I was like, what's a PJ? Tell me about this. And they're like, well, we'll go meet them. And they pulled onto, um, into the, the PJ barracks. And I mean, this is some crazy like synchronicity stuff, but basically the moment I pulled up this six and a half foot guy, you know, like is walking across the, the tarmac and um, he literally just walked off set from some like Good Morning America interview that they wanted him to do. And he was just like, fuck you people. Like, I can't. They had just hours before come off, um, I don't know if you, Operation Bulldog Bite, which is one of like the gnarliest firefights to go down in our Afghanistan occupation. And, and so the PJs, you know, were the team that went in and was just grabbing everybody they could, you know, like dead or alive, like getting everybody out of there and, and patching them up and bringing them back. And I mean, Roger was still, you know, covered in blood and guts. And, um, and he walked up to me and I just saw the gravity of his experience. It, like you could just see in his eyes that he was in the spirit world. You know, he was somewhere else, yeah. you know, and, and he looked at me and he looked at, you know, the officer that was escorting us and he was like, what is this? Who are you? And my heart just like sank into my feet. I was just like, I have no business being here. I'm so sorry. Like I, I'm a stupid tattoo artist from Brooklyn. I I'm sorry for even breathing the same air as you. And, um, and he kind of looked at me and he's like, you're a tattooer. I was like, yes, sir. I do tattoos. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, that might be good. And he, he looked at the, our like handler and he was like, go pack up their stuff. He's coming with me. And he literally like brought me into the PJ barracks hours after, you know, everything went down with Bulldog Bite. And I just like, I didn't leave that building for a week. I didn't come out for air. I just tattooed those guys 24 hours a day, drinking energy drinks and eating granola bars and just like contributing, contributing emotionally, whatever I could to them you know, reconnecting with life, you know, after everything they had been through. I mean, there was, you know, this guy, Jimmy Settle, who, you know, I still talk to all the time. You know, I remember him like walking up with a Band-Aid on his forehead. And, um, you know, I was like, oh, what happened? He's like, oh, I just popped a pimple and it bled a little bit. And then he walked away and it was like, no, they pulled bullet fragments out of his head this morning. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, so this is like the reality that I'm, I'm brushing up against. And, um, yeah, it was really, it was really amazing. Um, and it was, I'm sure, important to them. 
And I, and, I mean, and I, I tried. I am so humbled. I can tell you it was. I mean, because, you know, th- those moments of release or, you know, of home or even reflection really, really do matter. And, and the PJs are, you know, the, the special operations in the Air Force, the most elite, right? They're almost like the samurai. You said that you're going to have that look in his eye, right? But yeah. the, what they do is so elite and so unique. It's like, you know, more elite than NFL quarterback status or something like that, right? There's so few of them. But what they do is so intense and so important and so high stakes that for them to have welcomed you into that was was I'm sure very significant to no, them as I, well as, I mean, as to you. I felt like the reverence around those guys. What they get? I mean, you maybe you get this was, question a lot, but like you know, is, was there a theme no, among I mean, the PJs, or of, are they getting like Mickey Mouse tattoos? Like, what, to be what, honest, what? no, it was two directions. You know, um, a couple of them. You know, like Raj got, um, you know, the coordinates of of what he had just experienced on his arm, and then he, he, I did two birds on him with his son's names. And everyone else I tattooed, the tattoos went in those two directions. It was either reinforcing the sense of camaraderie um, with the people they were there with, or it was reinforcing the connection with a home they needed to not forget. Mm. Mm. That's, a, that's another reason I was excited to talk to you, Scott, because I know that the, um, you know, the, the world of tattoo has, a, I think, a special significance among uh, a, a lot of folks in our audience, the vets, first responders, you know, cops, firefighters, EMTs, you know, and, and often they signify um, loss, right? And they want to, or, or they want to celebrate life, right? And, and so many guys and gals that I know will have the names of friends they've lost or moments in that military experience that they want to stay with them. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, almost more than any other community, it has a real, real importance, especially because on, on the other side of things, it's a way of kind of bringing it with you when you, when you want to bring your family overseas and you've got that tad yeah. of your kid's name. It's that feeling that they're with you in that terrible moment when you're a PJ in a firefight. Yeah. Um, and so you have a really unique insight into that community and probably into so many different communities. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, even, you know, thinking about firefighters, it was like, yeah, like, you know, I lived in New York, um, you know, during 9-11, I was living down off of Canal Street and I was tattooing in a tattoo shop out in Long Island, um, you know, in Wontaw, Long Island, which is like half the cops and firemen yeah. live out there, you know, so I did tons of, of you know, 9-11 memorial tattoos that year. Um, but, you know, people get tattooed, I think people are really drawn to tattoos at moments in their life when they have big things happening that are out of their control, you know, be it someone dying, be it heartbreak, be it the shit that, you know, those guys went through in Afghanistan. I think it's, you know, when you're kind of being affected by circumstances, um, getting a tattoo can be a very literal and physical way of reassuring yourself that you're the one guiding your own life. You know, like you could, you could say like, fuck, like I'm just riding this crazy world wave of circumstances that are out of my control, but you can, you can sit, go to a tattoo shop and be like, but you know what? I'm going to make a decision right now that will change who I am in a symbolic way for the rest of my life. Like I'm going to just like carve something into my skin and for the rest of my life, I will have that thing. So I think it really helps people feel more in control Mm. of who they are and where they're going. Has it changed at all, Scott, now that maybe tattoos aren't as permanent as they used to be? Um, now, with you know, if you no, can get it lasered off, does that change 
the it's way still, people approach I mean, it or the way you approach it? I don't it? know if you've gotten anything lasered off, but it's I a haven't, brutal so. process. Yeah. It's still not like flipping a switch. It's not as simple as an eraser. It's still, yeah. If if you go to get a tattoo lasered off, it takes you know five to ten really painful sessions, and you can't help but meditate about whatever the fuck that tattoo <laughs> right. is while you're doing it. So it almost sometimes I feel like getting a tattoo removed gives that tattoo more power, you know, because it's like you have to go through this ritual again and again and again around that one tattoo. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, like obviously it's easy for me to say because I'm covered in, I mean, I'm like the bathroom wall of some shitty bar with like names and phone numbers (laughs) scribbled all over me. You know, like my skin is not precious, but you're kind of, I got to check it. I mean, you're, you're more like, you know, the the bathroom at CBGB's. I mean, this is not a shitty bar. I mean, mean, with all due respect, this is, yeah, but there's, you know, I'm on like my third and fourth layer now. Um, but you know, but I do kind of think, you know, it's like when I see people, you know, people come in the tattoo shop all the time. They're just like, Oh, I fucking hate this tattoo. Like I can't, I can't stand it. I really just like regret it. And you know, like I've, I've heard this speech thousands of times and, you know, in reading beneath the surface, I feel like when someone really hates a tattoo, it's because they don't like who they were at the time that they got the tattoo and they Mm. want to pretend that that version of them never existed. And Mm. so, you know, I don't know if there is such thing as regrettable. There's going to be people who don't like this, but there's, I don't think there's such a thing as regrettable tattoos. I think a regrettable tattoo just represents an unreconciled past. Wow. Um, Have you ever said no to to doing tattoos to a a tattoo concept? So many times. Yeah. Yeah. What's that like? I mean, how does that go down? Well, now I have the luxury of, you know, I have a very elite status now. Yeah. I mean, like I've, you know, like I've reached a place in my career where I can say no and there's still someone behind them that will say, yeah, you know what I mean? Like I I can still feed my family and say no to tattoos that I disagree with. But, you know, there have been times in my life when I needed that hundred bucks, you know, in order to eat. And so when someone came in with a shitty idea, um, it, you know, it's like with any artistic endeavor, I had this like scale of like integrity versus hunger, you know, and like, which, which side do I go with? But, um, you get really good, you know, when someone comes in with a horrible idea, you really get really good at this bedside manner of leading them towards a better idea in a way that they think it's their idea, you know, where you're yeah. like, okay, we're going to go over here yeah. and you're going to think you thought is of it. Is, yeah. is there a Scott Campbell line? at that point of impact is there a are you sure you want to do this or do you have, have a line like some doctors do this might be too right before you start to cut or but i have you full basically i'll draw something the way i want to do it or the way i think you know i mean i mean i'm not a dick like i understand i try to be acknowledge whatever their emotional situation is that brought them there i real i want it to represent that but if the execution if their idea of what the, if i think you know what they're envisioning is kind of crappy. I've fully drawn it the way I want to do. And then in showing to them, be like, hey, you know, so you said something that was really awesome and it made me think of this. And I thought that was such a great idea that you had. And so this is what I drew based on your idea. Yeah. They didn't say anything that made me think about that. I just drew it my way. You know, I was like, yeah, but like that one thing you said really made it click. And so I thought that was great, the thing that you suggested. So I drew the thing that you suggested. And, um, you know, it's also kind of them saving face of being like, oh, yeah, that does look better than my idea. But let's call it my idea and just put it on me. Right. Yeah. And, right. Uh, but there's a real, you know, psychological and artistic mat- m- you know, mastery to what you do. And, and 
you know, that experience of going from PJs in Afghanistan to, you know, guys in prison in Mexico City to Hollywood movie stars. I mean, you are maybe more than almost anybody I've interviewed, somebody who's gone uptown, downtown, oh, everywhere in between, right? Yeah, and I mean, so I've what tattooed if- everything from, like, like, people who murdered for biker gangs that I can't name to Jennifer Aniston and everything in between. You know, like, I can't think of another blue-collar job that touches all yeah. that. Yeah, and so going back to the point you made earlier, you know, you've been around tattooing as it has exploded around the world it's almost like i don't know you're like krs1 in hip-hop's explosion or you know i don't know who, who the, right, who the yeah, artist yeah. we want to pick is but you have been kind of a founding father as this 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 expression and this i don't even know how to encapsulate this movement right. has swept the globe so what as that has happened and specifically in this country given your roots right you yeah. came from Louisiana. what have you learned about America. Um, college isn't as important as they make it out to be. That was kind of like, um, yeah, I mean, it's it really, I mean, emotional value is actual value. If I had to summarize it up, it's, it's that, you know what I mean? Like you think that like commodities are value and, um, you know, hard goods are value, like real estate is value, but emotional value is true value. Like people will pay for emotional value. Mm. Um, and I've based my career on that. I mean, there was there was one thing that really, I mean, I can bitch about college and it's useless <laughs> if we want to, but like there was one experience that really kind of made me click early on in my career as to the value of what I do. And, you know, I started tattooing in this shitty biker shop in San Francisco called Picture Machine. And you know, I was low guy at the totem pole. So I had to open up each day and kind of clean up after the whole mess that all the guys left the night before. And one morning I was, I was there, you know, I got in there at 11, I was opening up. Um, and it was set up like a doctor's office where there's a waiting room and then the tattoo area and a little sliding window window in between. So I went in there, turning all the lights, I'm cleaning up all the Chinese food off the stations that the guys left the night before. And, you know, I hear footsteps coming in and I, and I hear them walk into the waiting room and turn around and there's guys standing there. Um, and I was like, Hey buddy, what, you know, like, what can I do for you? Can I help you? And he was like, I want to get a butterfly tattoo. I was like, all right. Um, you know, so I grabbed the butterfly binder, put it on the counter. I'm like, thumb through there, you know, like pick out one you like, let me know. And he didn't even reach for the book. He was like, you pick it. He's like, I'm sure whichever butterfly you pick, I'll be happy with. And I was like, are you sure you don't want to? And then I realized he was blind and you know, Long story short, like I saw, I start tattooing this guy. I pick out a butterfly, put a stencil on his chest and I start tattooing him. And so I'm like, what's going on? Like, you got to tell me the story here. And here's a guy who has been blind his whole life. He was born without vision. So he's never seen a butterfly and he's never seen a tattoo, but he's getting a tattoo of a butterfly on his chest. He's going through this ritual and and it, you know, he went on to say, you know, like he reads a lot in Braille and he read, you know, like he, he read the story of Papillon, you know, the, like the, you know, the guy had a tattoo of a butterfly on his chest and he didn't even know what a tattoo was or a butterfly, but he wanted to have that thing. And it just made me realize how powerful symbols can be to people. Whereas like he didn't need to see it or really understand it, but he connected with that symbol so much. It was still worth going through that for him to get. 
And that gave me a real reverence for what I was giving to people and, and made me really understand like how valuable that can be to people. Wow. That's an incredible story. It was amazing. Yeah. And, um, and he went on to get more tattoos. He got like a dragon and a tiger and a bunch of like all the cliches. He did yeah, it. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he was a really Thank amazing Thank you for guy. sharing that. that. That's that's a really, really incredible But it story. made me take what I do much more seriously. Because yeah. like, oh, this isn't just flippant aesthetic. You know, like right. there's an underlying meaning to it. Um, but yeah, so in, you know, like in relation to like what I've learned about America, it's that, um, yeah, emotional value and emotional currency is really powerful. Um, you know, I mean, it's, you know, if we're going into it, you know, I mean, the show is called the Angry Americans. If we, if we want to brush against our shitbag president, you know, he's president because of his emotional resonance, like nothing, you know, he's totally impractical. He's a fucking moron, but people feel angry and he connects with that anger. And that's where all his power is derived from, you know, is he just emotionally connects with people. And it's like, fuck, you know, like facts don't even matter. He's distorting reality with emotion. And, and yeah, so it's like, you know, it's terrifying in a way to see it like that emotional power abused at that level. Um, but but yeah, I try to use it for the forces of good. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you took us there because, you know, another reason I was excited to talk to you, Scott, is because your life and your journey has taken you into so many different places. Right. You know, you you, you have this gritty background of scraping, you know, tattooing to eat. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, soaring all the way up to tattooing Jennifer Aniston, starting multiple businesses. You are politically active. You're thinking, you know, you're conscious. You and your wife are involved in what's going on, you know, in the world. And, and so building on that that point you raised, the question I ask of everyone, Scott Campbell, what makes you angry? Oh man. Um, I mean this year a lot. It's a, like, how, how long is this podcast? As um, long as it needs to be, man. That's the great part about podcast. Um, no, I think the stuff that really makes me angry is when people capitalize or take advantage of other people's kindness, you know, and I, and I, um, you know, the notion that it's funny, like the lottery used to make me angry when I was a kid because it was like I read there was some punk rock record label. I think it was Dead Kennedys or something that that called the lottery attacks on hope. And I was just like, oh, yeah, fuck that. Like you're really like because optimism as a whole is something that I I want to believe is growing. You know, what I mean, like optimism is like what I need in order to look my kids in the eye every morning. And the fact the, the notion that there are forces and greedy fucking you know institutions that literally base their business model on exploiting people's optimism and their hope and their kindness um really really infuriates me you know and um and i i, I think you know this administration and and like a lot of things going on in dc and in the world you know like it's it's easy to shit on our country because we're fucking up more than anybody but you know there's like huge right-wing movements in in germany right now you know and like it, it's there's like a kind of global issue going on, but I, the notion that there, there is a group of people who still really believe in compassion and in a community and helping each other. And that those emotional values are exploited and taken advantage of by people who just see everything as dollar signs is really infuriating. Hmm. 
I, f- I feel you on that, man. Yeah. <laughs> I think, no, and I'm really glad you, you shared that. We were talking earlier about, you know, your connection to punk rock culture. Yeah. I mentioned to you that I've been honored to know Henry Rollins, who, you know, spoiler alert, folks, he'll join us at some point in the next couple of weeks or months, and we'll, we'll go deep on that. But, you know, you've had these influences from your upbringing. Punk rock is, is one of them. You grew up in Louisiana. Now you're living in New York and L.A. and hanging out like Louis Vuitton and all this, yeah. you know, other levels. But going back to where you came from, um, because you're, you're such a great American success story. Like you've built businesses, you've created, you've created so many things that have contributed positively to people's lives and to our country and to our world. But going in the way, way back machine, you started to tell me this story downstairs, but I'm excited for you to share it with the audience. Scott Campbell, what was your first car? <laughs> uh, my first car was a real ratty Chevy Nova. Um, it was a 67 Nova that was it was actually more like fred flintstone's car because it, it the passenger floorboard was actually totally rusted out and had a two by four bolted across that the passenger had to put their foot on but you could watch the pavement go by underneath you um but uh yeah 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 i mean it's yeah that car i mean we were you know this is gonna sound really hypocritical it's like i'm just talking about compassion but we were like little redneck assholes you know like i remember taking that car when like airbags first came out, we were like, what? I remember taking that car and like, we went to the nearest mall. We were like, let's find the most expensive car we can and ram it and see if we can make the airbags go off. You know, we were just like, um, now I was, you know, like a shitty little suburban, you know, teenager, but, um, but I learned compassion later on people. Yes. Yes. Uh, Yes. Don't judge too harshly. Um, what color was the car, Scott? It was just like a tan, like oh. sandy dusty like rust color um yeah it, it didn't last that long but it, it it served its purpose it gave me the freedom that you needed you know when you're 16 like any car anything that can like you know anything that's better than hitchhiking is great you know and uh but yeah but that now my daughter who's four years old is named nova um which i really you know is great because nova obviously has um you know astronomy references but it also has like red-blooded redneck american you know value as well and uh so yeah i I love that i've never met anyone named nova and i've never interviewed anybody who named their firstborn child after their first car yeah yeah i mean it's it's yeah i wanted to name we have a two-year-old son too i wanted to name him truck but lake wouldn't let me she was like I was like, come on, truck would be such a great name I for I was kid. going for Maximus and yeah, Thor totally. and a couple others <laughs> that got rejected. But yeah. you landed on another cool one. Yeah, Ozzy. You, you so landed we, on we Ozzy. With, yeah, Osgood for short. Um, what's what's harder, you know, uh, coming up with a tattoo for yourself or for a loved one or coming up with a name for your kids? Oh, um, that's kind I mean, of a, they're, both, ultimate, they're both they're both yeah i mean tattooing it's a creative it's a create maybe the ultimate creative yeah. experience right is, but i mean it's it, it is kind of like in the same way that i look in the mirror and i actually don't even see my tattoos anymore you know it's like the person will change what that tattoo means um you know in the beginning you put all this pressure on a name or what the connotations are but like you know one year two years into it 
the like the sound of that name is so abstract and so connected with who that person is that like it doesn't matter like yeah. you could name him orange juice and he'd just you'd still <laughs> fucking love him yeah. yeah and they grow into it right yeah, and totally. they and they define it dude my right? kids would like, make the word orange juice look dope yeah they would, right yeah, <laughs> they would yeah. i mean when it. when uh you know my firstborn son's name is Ryder, and um he is a writer. I can't imagine the name without yeah. him or him Nova without that name. Nova, through right? And, through. And, yeah. and it just has, has come to define who he is or he has come to define what it means in the world. And there's yeah. only one of him and, and he's a beautiful and unique snowflake, right? Yeah. That tells fart jokes it's and, right. <laughs> and, and bad, and bad, bad knock, knock, knock jokes. Um, but when you, when you, uh, you know, you've, you've had this amazing journey, Scott, where you've gone through so many different industries and you're also an entrepreneur. You know, you've been the guy sweeping the floors at night yeah. when the blind guy comes in to get a tattoo. And then you've worked with Louis Vuitton. And now uh, another reason I've been really looking forward to talking to you is, is you're running and creating a company that I think is brilliant. You created Bebo and, and I know your, your business partner, Clement, that's one of the ways we first connected. He's, I think, a, a visionary and genius and brilliant guy that I've been thrilled to know. And a couple of years ago, you know, he put the product in my hand and told me what he was doing and I was blown away. And I think what you're doing is really, really exciting. But can you tell the story of Bebo and, yeah. and what you guys are doing? So, so yeah, for those who know, Bebo is a, a, a cannabis brand brand we do uh like cannabis oil vape pens and edibles um currently in california and colorado and then launching to other states soon um yeah i mean it's it's funny i when i first started getting into cannabis i was like oh this is gonna be a jump i don't know if people are gonna follow but you know like i was like wow this is out of my wheelhouse but like fuck it like i'm passionate about it i want to i want to do it but now being on the other side of it, you know, like I said, like I kind of saw and participated in growing tattooing from this underground fringe, basically criminal culture to, you know, the center of pop culture. And, and now being with weed where it is now, it's like, oh, it's the same thing. It's taking this underground criminal fringe culture that I was super passionate about and translating that to America you know, and um, so there's actually been a lot more parallels than I thought when I took those first steps. Um, but basically, I so in, in, you know, in tattooing, I found myself like, you know, I found myself culturally relevant, but broke, you know, and so I'm like, wait, like, here's, you know, like, I'm like, I'm very Googleable, you know what I mean? Like I'm out there, but I'm still like, my life is very hand to mouth, you know? So I was like, how can I be this? Like, how can all these powerful, rich, creative people look to me for creative, like guidance, you know? And the most intimate, one of, you know, one of the more intimate like things that they'll, that they'll purchase or do. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't like, you know, the th work that I do doesn't resonate beyond these people's arms or legs, you know, it, it, it's, and there's a beauty in tattooing for that. Like, I like that it's, there's no resale value, you know, mm. there's, there's an emotional purity in that, but, um, but definitely like a bit of frustration where it's like, I want to do things that resonate further. So I, I then, um, launched a, a wine brand, um, called saved wines that, um, that did really well, you know, like it, it, it did really well. And, you know, like that was me just taking my emotional language and kind of like, you know, my sense of 
of heart and storytelling and putting it into a physical product. And, and that, the, my, the learning experiences through that really gave me the confidence to, to start a weed brand. Um, and this was, you know, kind of before California had gone recreational. Um, I partnered up with my buddy Clement. He's, um, I mean, he, he's, if, if you saw us standing next together to each other, it's very clear which hemisphere of the brain we each represent. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously the creative emotional weirdo and he's the like the steadfast pragmatic Asian that people will actually loan money to. Um, and, and to be honest, like it's the best partnership I've ever had. I've never had a working relationship that was so successful and so great as that. Cause he really, he trusted me completely when it came to creative and really like supported me in, in my vision. And I completely trusted him on like a strategic financial level. I was like, I don't know, just tell me mm. if we have gas in the tank, great, mm. I'm good. But just you go, you know? And um, so we built this brand Bebo, um, which, you know, I mean, I've learned my lessons in, in you know, other commercial collaborations that there's no worse feeling. You know, like I knew I was gonna have to put this out there in the world publicly and speak about it. And there's no worse feeling than speaking about something that you don't actually care about. You know, it's horrible. Like, I don't mm. know if you've ever been in a position where mm. you had to like endorse something or like that you weren't really passionate about it, but it's the grossest feeling ever. So in starting this, I was like, okay, like if I'm going to do weed, it has to be, I was like, what's my most emotional connection with weed? And, you know, like, and I use weed a lot in my creative process um, as a way of opening up, but, um, I, my mom, um, she was diagnosed with cancer when I was eight and she fought it for, um, you know, seven years and ended up passing away when I was 15. But, you know, and on paper, I'll tell people the story and I was like, oh my God, that's so heavy. But when I think back on it, those years were like so bright and like fun. And, you know, there was such a levity in those years. And I, and I think about it. Um, and a lot of it's cause my grandmother, um, you know, my grandmother, when, when my mom was sick, she would always, every time my mom would go through chemo, mom, grandma would bring brownies over. She'd bring a yeah. box of my brownies for us kids. And then a box of my mom's brownies. And this is a beautiful story. I mean, it really, really is. A, and, 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 and I was going to ask you explain where the name Bebo came from, but it's a really beautiful story. Well, it's, it's yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. Like I, you gotta keep it sincere, like lead with sincerity. Like if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Yeah. And so can you t please continue with the story about your, your, your yeah, grandma? so we, so, so yeah. So like every time my mom went through chemo, my grandmother would, would bake her brownies and us brownies. And, you know, my sister and I, we'd mow through our brownies in like minutes, you know, like our box would be empty and then we'd be like, where's mom's brownies. And, you know, she always kept them in her closet in this like padlock trunk and they just become this like magical, like elusive treasure of like mom's brownies. Um, of course, later we found out that it's because mom's brownies were full of weed. Right, you know? like, right, so right. my grandmother would make my mom pot brownies while she was going through chemo. And um, but but yeah, but like and my mom's my grandmother's name was Bebo. So we, we named the brand Bebo after her. But it really was. I mean, like those years on which on paper should be so dark. You know, I remember like, you know, I remember drawing smiley faces on my mom's butt and then like 
you know, sticking her meds, you know, injecting her meds into where the nose would be, you know? Mm. And I remember like sitting on the back porch, you know, when her hair would start to fall off, you know, we'd shave her head. And I remember gluing all her hair to her remote control car and like chasing my dog around with it, the house and like making them, it was just like, it was so much fun, you know? And, and I really, it was never scary. I mean, I was really fortunate enough to like get to talk to my mom about death a lot and what death meant. And, you know, like she was really open and answering questions with us. And, you know, so that by the time she did pass away, it, it was sad. Like it was deeply sad, but it was never scary, you know? Mm. And, um, and yeah, like, you know, the day she passed away, she basically called my sister and I up to the hospital and sat us down on her bed and, you know, asked for our permission. She was like, I want to go. She was like, I'm tired and I'm hurting. And like, I, I need you guys to tell me that you're okay. And, you know, and we said goodbye that night. And then that was, that was a Saturday. And I remember waking up Sunday morning and, you know, they came in to tell us that she had died and, you know, it's like, we knew it was going to happen. Um, but I, like, I went to school the next day. Like I went mm -hmm. to school on Monday morning and I felt 10 feet taller than anyone in that school. You know what I mean? Like the perspective and kind of that that gave me instantly, like I had no problems, you know, like everything mm -hmm. that everyone else in high school was worried about or concerned about, like none of that, fucking mattered anymore and you know we're in a time when it's like i mean of course there's like waves of sadness you know and like to this day like you know i i miss her but but i really was fortunate to like grow from that experience so much instead of being handicapped by it mm. um thank you for sharing so that yeah. man that, yeah, that's really really profound and um i know it will give other people strength and yeah. perspective. Oh, for sure. If there's and any parents out there with terminal yeah, please. illnesses. That's actually going to be my next question. Don't is, shelter your kids from please. it. Bring them yeah. in the room. You know what I mean? Like, talk about it. I Because it really, the, her death, like, empowered me and uh, in a way. Whereas, like, if you hide it from them and make it scary, like, it really can handicap them. Mm. You know? And uh, And so, yeah, I mean, I've always, you know, like, I hope that, you know, first of all, I hope I die before my kids and second of all, I hope I get a chance to like really talk to them about it before that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I often ask our guests, you know, knowing that everybody's struggling with something and a lot of folks listening to this may be going through a really tough time to have that perspective from you and to see how you've gotten through it and come out on the other side is really inspiring and I think important. Yeah. Really, really important, especially um, because you're touching on a couple of issues that folks don't talk about, right? And 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 they don't talk about how to talk about it with kids, yeah. which is really, really difficult. Just talk to them like they understand. You know what I mean? Like yeah. make them understand everything. Don't water it down. Don't dilute it. There's so much more. Because I feel like experiencing death and loss of that magnitude, it's kind of like chicken pox, you know? Like when you get it when you're young, you bounce back. You adapt to it. You build up some antibodies. You learn to live in a world with death. But if you don't get it until you're 40, it can put you in a wheelchair. That's deep, man. That's true. That 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 if, if, if I've never heard that before, but that's really a bullseye, okay. and that that is really really powerful. Um, thank you for sharing that too. And I, and I want to I want to go for a second back back to Bebo because there's an important part of this that I hey, want drugs. Yeah, no, 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 drugs. no, 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 no. <laughs> I actually want to focus on something different. Um, 
this 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 alchemy that exists between you and Clement, right, is real. Yeah. Because I didn't know you, but the last time I felt as impressed when I had something in my hand was maybe when I had an iPod in my hand. There was for the first time, and I know where that was. It was in Afghanistan. It was in Iraq. It was in Iraq. And I and I someone sent me an iPod. I remember the very first iPod I had. I was like, this thing yeah. blew my fucking mind. But there was there is an incredible beauty to what you've designed. And people, you know, you can Google it and check it out. And when you have it in your hand, and if you experience the product, this is not an endorsement. You know, this is this is right. part of why because you got this magic of beautiful design. There's a rose gold color to it. There's your artistry in it, but the function, right? With this thing fucking works and it's a really nice experience and i think it does kind of help people understand a different side and frankly a more glamorous side to cannabis and maybe in the same way you have with tattoos right there was a time when like you know smoking weed was a dirty thing you did in a coke can or in the back and it was for criminals and now we understand that it can help people deal with real severe pain and has incredibly powerful medicinal effects. I've been proud on this show to be a, an advocate for cannabis reform and for changes in policy and to highlight people who are really paving the way. But I think you are at a very forward edge of innovation in terms of function and art um, and, and at this really exciting intersection. So I, I had to share that with you. Because I think it's important, and I think Bebo is going to, already a tremendous success. It, it's probably going to be an even more mammoth success, and that'll be an incredible testament to you and, and, a, and a, a salute to your grandmother and to your mother. But it's also going to help people, like it really, and, and, and inspire people. It's hard to do both. It's hard to be functional and inspiring, but you're doing that, and I think that's a through line in almost everything you've done in your work and your life, Scott. Yeah, I mean... I Thanks. I, again, I'm definitely sending that to my dad. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, mentioning Clem, like it, it was, you know, having a supportive business partner is something that it's funny. Like I'll tell other artists and creatives about, you know, my relationship with him and they're just like, fuck, I need one of those, you know, <laughs> like I need somebody who just like, you know, just believes in me that hard, you know, that, that will like, let me kind of, sprinkle my magic sparkle sauce on it and and just go um but yeah it's been it's been really exciting seeing it grow um you know what, what have you learned about you know you, you go in the into these different worlds but right now in given this political context given the yeah. president what is it like for you as not just an artist but as an entrepreneur what's it like to be an entrepreneur in america right now at the level you're at um i mean i think it comes back to like emotion has value you know i mean i've i've like you know i'm now a part of this like crazy i mean you know so like my company's publicly traded now you know like I, did, I had to learn what stocks were you know and i have i'm like trying to understand how this all works um you know i mean i still like you know i'm the creative end but i i want to you know i sit in on all the meetings and and it's um it's crazy seeing the power of emotion and emotional connection Whereas like, it's really, if you can emotionally connect with people, like that's currency, you know? And, um, you know, it's, <laughs> cause it's really like, you know, that's what like my product is. I mean, my product has, that's not true. Like it actually has like a chemical and biological function, but you know, what, what makes it different is that, okay. So there's, in, in working with a, 
a business, an operation the size of mine now, what I've learned is that there's kind of two ways to approach um, entrepreneurship. And one is kind of like, like you see a lot, and I'm, I'm just, I'm going to speak on the weed side because, you know, that's what I know, but, but it, it actually applies to a lot of other avenues as well is that, you know, like in the weed world, I see all this tech money coming into weed where they're like, and they brag about like their analytic um, abilities where it's like, we can give you real time feedback on what people are wa walking to the dispensary and buying, like what website they're looking to, what, you know, like all this like real time analytics. Um, and I'm like, cool. So you can understand in real time what people are asking for. But then the other side of entrepreneurship, which I like to place myself into is where I don't know, I don't do focus groups. I don't do market studies. I don't want to know anything about that. I want to make something for me. You know, like I'm going to design something selfishly, something that I want that isn't out there and, and might be a little over people's heads, but I'm going to give people, I'm going to have the confidence in people to like understand it, even though it's above what they're asking for. And so basically it's kind of like, there's two approaches where mm. do you accommodate existing demand or do you go right ahead? Do you go, do you put out something that people aren't asking for and then teach them why it's better? And, um, you know, obviously like the easiest way is to give them what they're asking for. Um, but, but the way you move culture is by giving them something that they have to learn in order to appreciate. Mm. Um, and where they, they trust you, right. And, yeah. and in the same way, the blind guy trusted you for sure, in the yeah. same way, folks trust you when you take them down this journey and say, I know you want this tattoo, but I, but I can show you something better. Yeah. That's what you've done here too. And that, that's been a through line that that's vision, Scott. And that, and that's where you, I think are moving culture and business and, and, and people's lives in a way that that is ahead of the curve. When I first got a Bebo in my hand, the one thing that struck me too, is that, you know, it, it was called, I think like the Hermes of, of, cannabis products or yeah, something, but right. Weed. The yeah, Hermes yeah. of weed. Right. And I said, wow, it feels like a luxury experience. It also feels more accessible to women, right. Yeah. Which may not be the intent or maybe the intent, but there hasn't been traditionally, you know, a jewel is very rugged looking, traditionally yeah. masculine. Right. And I don't want to get into gender stereotypes too much, but it, it felt smoother. Right. And it felt, yeah. it felt, uh, different. And I think that that's a really important thing that I think you've been able to do in every aspect of your life is, is raise it up. Right. And, and add that creative, um, input and yeah. that, that special sauce, that, that magic. And yeah. that's really what it is. Right. That, that, that I think you're able to, I mean, I think, to do. yeah, with like with Bebo and we like definitely, we didn't, I mean, it wasn't, designed for women but it was it was designed like what i knew whatever i made had to be good enough for my wife mm. um and you know i wanted i wanted something that she would use because i feel like she's definitely kind of the 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 taste authority in my household and i think most women are in, in most households um but but yeah when we when we went to market um it was a very much an uphill battle people were like nobody wants this stuff you know because our stuff it's lower dosed you know, like, like, you know, five years ago, you walk into a dispensary in California, everything was designed for like, how high can I get for 20 bucks? Right. You know, it was just about like, what's the THC to dollar ratio? Cause that's all people were concerned with. And I was like, cool, that's not me. You know, I'm a high functioning adult. I love using weed, but I, 
I can't get trapped on my sofa for six hours. Right. You know, like, and so I wanted something that, you know, was a milder dose, very controllable. Um, I mean, yeah, trust is hugely important. You know, our dosage is very um, metered so that like you never get higher than you want to get. Um, and, and also, yeah, presented in a way that, that looks nice, you know, that looks beautiful. It, yeah. It looks it, beautiful. And, but I think it's like, that comes back to trust as well, where, you know, I knew like a lot of people were new to cannabis, you know, there's a, like, especially now as it's opening up, there's a lot of first time users. So when you go into a dispensary, if you see something that's really beautiful and considered and thought out in the way it's presented, you look at it and you'd be like, I don't know much about weed, but I can see that whoever made this is proud of it, mm, you know? And that's, so whatever, you feel that. Yeah. Whatever, you feel that. whatever level of consideration is put into the exterior, it's pretty safe to say yeah. they put that into whatever's inside as yeah. well. That, that's why I thought the origin story of your grandmother and the name is so important in the way. Well, yeah, you're, I'm not going to put anything. No. And, you, and you're building what could name. be, you know, and, and it's already becoming like a new iconic American brand. Like it, it will, it will become that I think. And, and I'm glad you got into the experience because we started talking about coffee. Yeah. Right. A lot of weed in the early days in cannabis products was coffee. Oh you guys God. bought kind of green tea. In, totally, into yeah. the experience and it was very very different for someone who didn't want and to be overly to be honest, caffeinated the growth of cannabis is inextricable from the growth of like the wellness movement in general mm. you know i think you know weed is is very quickly becoming um you know is replacing alcohol in a lot of people's lives because it's it's a way to go out and like unwind on a friday night in a way that you wake up Saturday morning feeling better instead of worse. hundred percent. You know, I, I am proof positive of that, especially as I've gotten older, I can't and don't drink like I used to. And yeah. I don't want to wake up feeling fucked up and hang hung over the next day when my four-year-old's bouncing on my uh, face, telling holding me, your kid with a hangover jokes. is the worst, the worst feeling in ever. the world. Yeah. You just feel like yeah. such a dirt bag. It yeah. really, it really, really is. And I, I think we, for me, it's a moment of enlightenment in this country yeah. That, that maybe is coming at a time when we really need it, given our politics, given the stress in America. The last thing we need is everybody in America drinking right now, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and granted, we drink on the show. I'm, I'm, for those yeah. who are wondering, I'm actually having a Negroni right now. <laughs> um, you know, we'll have maybe a future episode where we bring in Elon Musk and Joe Rogan and me and you, we can all yeah. smoke up. But but I, I really do think that that it's important for us to think about what's going in our body and what we're experiencing and what's around us and what we value at a, at a time when the stakes are pretty pretty high. Um, so I, I want to go to another question I ask every single guest, Scott, and you've touched on it in many different ways, but, but Scott Campbell, what makes you happy? Oh, man. I mean, family is the most immediate answer. You know, like getting to, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so many things. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like in the same way that, that, seeing people, you know, seeing people take advantage of other people's kindness, like is infuriating to me. Seeing kindness win is everything. You know what I mean? Like seeing that, you know, uh, that like karmic retribution when you do something good and it like, it all pays off and it all comes back around. Um, I love that, you know, I mean, it's, and then, you know, like kids, of course, I mean, these days, like, I laugh harder than I've laughed in decades, just mm. like hanging out with my kids. Cause it's, you know, hanging out with a four-year-old gives you permission to be four years old again. And like, 
a lot of the anxiety of the shit you carry around and the shit you think matters just like falls off and you're like, oh yeah. Like sometimes just like a plate of chicken nuggets and the sunset is everything. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, man. And the world so, would be a lot better if we embraced our inner toddler. Yeah, right? for sure. And, and um, I, th I think you're, you're so much of what you've said today, I think is, is going to resonate with people from so many different backgrounds on, on so many different issues. Um, it, it's a really, I think, exciting time to be talking with you about. I'm glad we've gotten to get into so many different areas. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, I hope it doesn't feel too schizophrenic. We Not at all, man. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a journey, and I think we've, we've been on this journey together. Um, and and I, the other thing I want to ask you, because we've talked about it in different ways, music is yeah. is obviously a huge influence in me. It's an influence in this show. We've got some guests coming up that are going to come from the music world that I'm excited to to share with people in the months to come, but talk about music and, and in particular, what are you listening to right now? That's, that's, that's moving you or touching you or. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, music's been, I mean, I, you know, like I've spent 22 years of my life in tattoo shops. So it's like, yeah. there's, there's a soundtrack to everything. Um, I, it goes everything. I mean, I grew up in New Orleans listening to a lot of like blues and jazz, you know, Miles Davis and, and, uh, and then, you know, went into teenage years, was just, you know, Slayer and Metallica, and then went into a bunch of punk rock. You know, I was just like angry youth, just pushing against the walls around me, trying to, you know, I think it's, it's kind of like there's, that's like the arc of maturity is like when you're young, you know, everything's forced down your throat. So you define yourself by what you don't like. And then as you get a little bit older, you realize it's actually cooler to define yourself by things you do like you know and uh at least that was my path but um but yeah so i was like went through my angry punk rock phase and then i don't know and then these days i mean i gotta say this is like this is gonna be a really divisive kind of statement but like i just saw the cardi b talking to like bernie sanders on the in the car on the way over here and I fuck with Cardi B today. I really do. Like, she's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she's I have, awesome. I have absolutely no problem with that. And yeah. I don't think anyone should have a problem. I mean, I, I, I was, when I was walking over to meet you, uh, and I talked about this in, in the show recently, I have been listening to Taylor Swift nonstop. <laughs> right. And I used it in the show. Um, I use the, you know, you better calm down yeah. to talk about Trump because I, I heard that song and I saw the video. I'm like, this is fucking brilliant. Yeah. And you know, you go through different points. If it's car, if it's Cardi B it or, love, or it's like, Taylor I mean, Swift. Cardi B, she's, you know, like she was literally like stripping on a pole, like <laughs> catering to fucking like rich assholes, like literally like taking her clothes off and by selling emotion, you know what I mean? By like yeah. her emotional value and her words, like she's fucking crushing it right now. Yeah. And so, and I like that she's using her emotional power for the forces of good. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's really. Like, is there a kind of, like I have friends who are surgeons. One of yeah. my best friends is a surgeon. Is there, is there a, a playlist or a genre or an artist you listen to when you're tattooing? Um, it goes, it's so schizophrenic when I'm tattooing. It, um, no, I generally. When I'm tattooing, I'll I'll let the client decide because it's kind of their comfort is more, um, you know, kind of important than mine. And I also like enjoy getting exposed to new things. So I usually ask the client to put on their playlist when they come in so that mm. 
so that I can learn something too. And it helps me be better connect with them. That's, that's excellent, man. Well, um, I am so grateful that you shared so much time with me. And if folks hear noises behind us, those are cars because we're, we're at the car club, which is a place that, that um, is and also they look as cool as they say. The cars look cool. And if you're listening for the first time and you want to see what this place looks like, go to angryamericans.us. We will have video of this interview with Scott and you get to look inside the car club. And you will also be able to see this part of the show, which is the ceremonial giving of the gifts. Oh, now, man. I did not prepare you for this, um, but... As is tradition on the show, we have some gifts for you. And I will start with um, the, the easiest, which is some Angry American swag, some Perfect. merch, okay, which I think you'll appreciate is made by veterans, made in the USA. It's hard to do. And you can absolutely criticize the design. Um, but hopefully. No, I, I, I love it. I don't, if I, I would never criticize it without sending you t-shirt designs. <laughs> Anytime. If you ever want to do a limited edition Scott Campbell shirt, we will be all over it. Um, and f the function piece too, uh, Mizzen and Maine has now given oh, us shirts for everybody, um, because they're super comfortable. And I went with just straight white because you're kind of a basic I guy. I'm pretty, and yeah. I, I figured that might be good. Now, um, next we, it's late morning. Um, but as, as also tradition, I have a special gift for every guest. Aww that I am inspired by. And I want you to open this. I would have right? used bigger words if I knew no, you were going to like. No, man, no, man. So for folks that are new, um, every guest, I pick an American whiskey and I go to a very liquor store in, in lower Manhattan, the same one. This dude's getting sick of me at this point, but I'm probably <laughs> keeping him in business. But I pick uh, a whiskey that inspires me and I'm like, what the fuck do I get for Scott Campbell? Oh, like, man. how do I get it? And I had beautiful. to pick something beautiful. This is amazing. And so this is Blanton's. It's made in America, um, but it's got this beautiful... I'll hold the mic for you. This is why it's great for audio, because you can hear the wrapping paper. And it's Blanton's. It's got this beautiful horse on top and this lovely bag that uh, I hope you will enjoy. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Thank you so much. You're this welcome. Beautiful. You're welcome. And now in total opposite, but also functioning on design, because we're not done with the gifts, Scott. As is also tradition on the show, we started the show around Easter. I just and wanted to say, I'm please. definitely not giving him a bunch of weed in New York because that's illegal here. So I'm definitely, is definitely it? not giving you any weed. Well, Chris so. Cuomo was on recently, <laughs> and I hope his brother, Andrew Cuomo, will join us so, when the so we can tackle off, that. Because it's, I'm it's, not going to give you any weed. Absolutely not. <laughs> But uh, we want to get Cuomo's brother, Andrew Cuomo, on this show so we can talk about it because New York's probably likely to go recreational in the next year or so. Yeah. And that movement is important. No, they're pushing hard. The genie's out of the bottle. Like, it's on its way. I mean, and it's also become, you know, I made this argument about veterans for many years that it's not a charity, it's an investment. And the companies and the cities and the states that understand that will be better off economically, be better off yeah. politically, be better off socially. No, you the know, only... And I, I mean, think the same is true for cannabis. Like, only, get with the program the or get left behind, right? To be honest, like, the only resistance um there is for legalization of cannabis at this point is pharmaceuticals and privatized prisons which in my opinion are like the two most evil industries there are you know what i mean like if, if you're charging people to save their own life you know overcharging people or if you're benefiting from people being in jail fuck off like yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's a uh... 
I mean, there's a lot of parallels that we've talked about today, but like the evolution of, you know, the punk rocker as the bad guy to becoming the good guy yeah. is kind of, you know, a parallel to the evolution of cannabis in America. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. And now, you know, in the same way, hip hop or, or punk music, you know, went from this renegade, dastardly bad thing to now being massive industries that change culture and inspire people and make a shitload of money. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of the American way. No. Right. Like, we, you know, the earth. right. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. And, and speaking of the meek, the last piece. <laughs> Is we started around Easter, so I ask every guest. These are peeps. I'm going to hold your mic for you here. Right, we'll, we'll teamwork here. Right. Um, so these are peeps. Yeah. And uh, there are three colors. Right. Traditional peeps. We have yellow, blue, and pink. And the question is, Scott Campbell, which color would you pick and why? I would go yellow, um, and that's just my own personal nostalgia. I well, blue. I mean. You know, in psychology class, they always teach you that, like, in, in nature, blue is toxic. So we have an inherent um, hesitation to eat anything blue. Hmm. Um, Which is why, like, you'll never see blue in a fast food Exactly. Yeah, that's logo. why McDonald's is red and yellow. Exactly. And red. there's no blue because, like, any restaurants don't have blue because it's associated if, with If toxicity. you're listening and you didn't know that, we're, we're dropping some knowledge on you today. <laughs> but blue, okay, so no on the blue peeps. Um, and then yeah. we come down. Now, now, now Scott has got them before his face and he's looking at yellow. pink or yellow. I mean, I know, I know there's a big movement with pink these days where, you know, it's like real men, you know, like aren't afraid of pink and I'm not afraid of pink. Um, but I just like the last time I ate a peep, I was 12 years old and it was yellow. And if I eat a peep, it's to connect with that 12 year old. So I'm, I'm going with yellow. I love that. I love that. I, I, I will tell you that that is a, a popular answer. Sarah Jessica Parker called the yellow peeps, the OG of peeps. Yeah. And you sure. are a guy who's about uh, the classics. Yeah. And it's inspired all of your work. <laughs> um, and you, you dude, are, are a true American success story, a real inspiration, a classic, you know, Renaissance man. And I've been so thankful for you to you for spending so much time with us on this show today and, and for all that you're doing, man. Folks have never heard of you before or didn't know your work. You know, Scott Campbell is 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 uh, the kind of person that I think has helped shape America's past. You're shaping America's present and you're going to shape America's future. And I'm, I'm really just grateful that you came in here and chopped it up with me, man. Oh, man. Thank you for having me. Honestly, like I'm so it's so important that anyone with a voice uses it for good reason and uh and i really admire everything you're everything you're doing and everything you're saying with yeah with with the audience you have it's great right back at you all right we're not gonna go smoke or drink any peeps now Definitely. we're gonna go uh do push-ups and and share pictures <laughs> of our kids but ladies and gentlemen scott campbell live from the, the classic car club in manhattan thanks for joining us Big thanks to some folks who helped make this awesome episode happen. First off, Scott Campbell, all-around awesome guy. So gracious and kind and cool. If you liked the interview with him, go to angryamericans.us and check out the video. And you can see his tats. That alone, good reason to check out the website and check out the video. Big thanks to creative Chris Rosenthal, Mighty Mercy Rich, excellent Eric Schonborn, uh, the whole Rockstar team at Righteous Media, they also create and update that website, all our graphics, and all the kick-ass videos that are on our Instagram and our YouTube page. If you don't follow us there on Instagram and YouTube, 
please do so and check it out. Bill Schultz, thank you again for producing this episode and working your audio magic. Mizzen and Maine, our founding sponsors of this show, awesome people, awesome products. Oscar Mike, our incredible merch partners. Check out all the new designs from them at angryamericans.us now. You can rock your Angry Americans gear. And we got a lot more stuff coming soon. Big thanks to Sarah Jessica Parker and her whole team. Tonight in New York, she launched a new wine collaboration with Invivo. It's a Sauvignon Blanc white from New Zealand, and it's called Invivo SJP. And she gave me and my wife and a bunch of other people a whole lot of it tonight. And it's super tasty. I'm not ready to scrap the whiskey on this show, but the wine will make for a very nice backup. And if you haven't gone to check out episode five with Sarah Jessica Parker, please do so. It's a gem, and I am so thankful she joined us on this show. In the spirit of being thankful, especially after a glass of wine, it's time to thank a listener. Every week, I thank a few angry Americans for listening. And first up this week, Earth Lover 7887 from Wisconsin. Independent, not afraid to fact check anyone and use social media to educate. Treats all with respect and greets strangers with a smile. Believe in the golden rule, not just God. Well, Earth Lover 7887, thank you for listening. You tweeted, great angry American show last week. I'm angry with Dems and mainstream media for failing to call out hypocrisy by GOP regarding misappropriation of military funding to the wall. Perfect missed opportunities by mainstream media follow-up questions. This isn't supporting the troops. I agree. Thank you very much. Thank you to Ken Saunders, who tweets at MTC the GOAT. MTC the GOAT, that's Kent. Uh, Kent tweeted, Paul, I have to tell you, your show is amazing. I come from a military family, so I appreciate how hard you work and educate for our vets. Pisses the fuck out of how our government treats the people that protect this country. Hashtag angry Americans. Dude, I hear you, and I'm very, very grateful for your support and for tuning in. Please keep it up. Uh, Big thanks next to my friend Perry Jeffries. He lives in Central Texas. He is a retired sergeant major. He is, his bio says he is an old soldier trying new things. He's one of my favorite human beings in the world. He loves his dogs. He loves his family. He loves motorcycles. He loves the Army. He's had a lifetime of service and has been a big supporter of this show. And he tweeted, this week's pod, an interview with Jonathan X, was one of the best of these always worthwhile shows. Also, rest in peace, Les Gelb. A loss for all. Hashtag Angry Americans. Thanks, Perry. Really appreciate it. You're right. Uh, Les Gelb has been a tremendous loss for all. Thank you to all of you for sending your support and your memories on him. And thank you for checking out last week with Jonathan X. If you haven't gone back and check it out, please do. Jonathan X, uh, we talked to live in Afghanistan. I was in New York. He was in Afghanistan on 9-11. And we talked to him. It was a really cool episode. You can check it out and go back and listen to that last week. Um, indeed, Perry, thank you to you and to all of you who tweet. And lastly, thank you to someone who doesn't tweet, but I know is a big supporter, Preetha Mittal. She listens every week. She's an activist, a strategist, and one of my parent role models and a great friend to me and this podcast and her husband, Nick. He ain't half bad either, but Preetha was part of an amazing crew that joined me, my wife, Lauren, Righteous Media, IAVA, and Rob Sarah on my roof last week for our 9-11 Celebration of Life dinner. So I want to thank Preetha and everyone else who came out. It was an amazing night. Uh, Big thanks to Rob Sarah, who was there after doing a ton of work all day long. He embodies all that this show and this movement in our country is all about. 
Uh, we all reflected and bonded and smiled and cried. And it ended with, this is going to break your heart, scooter rides in lower Manhattan. Uh, Rob's going to love this. But Rob sometimes, when he doesn't have his wheelchair, has a, I guess it's an electric scooter. And after a couple drinks, we helped Rob down to the street. And I asked him if I could take it for a spin. And I did. So I drove it around some closed streets in lower Manhattan at high speeds. And Rob's going to love that I'm telling you this shit. And he actually has video. And I'm sharing this with you out of gratitude for Rob and in full candor. But there is video of me. It's not really a scooter. It's not like a stand-up scooter. It's kind of a really fast wheelchair. So I think I get a pass on that. But nevertheless, it was a great night with Rob and our families and so many other people. And thanks to all of you who showed your love and shared your memories about the 9-11 show. It was really, really awesome. As always, thanks to my family, my, my amazing wife, and my two boys. They were there last week, and they continue to be incredibly supportive. They're excited about fall, and we are already talking about Halloween costumes. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but if you have suggestions on what me and my family should be for Halloween, please use the hashtag Angry Americans and let me know. Last year, we were PJ Mask, and I was Gecko. The year before that, we were wrestlers, and my son was Hulk Hogan. I was, of course, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and my wife was Macho Man Randy Savage. So the bar has been set high, folks, and we are going to do a collaborative family costume, and I welcome your suggestions. But my thanks to my wife and my boys, and finally, as always, my deepest thanks to you, my dear listener, for tuning in. Please continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on Apple device, please leave the show a quick review right now. Go ahead and do it right after you're done. Just go over there, take a minute, give us a five-star review, and tell three of your friends to check this show out. Three. That's the magic number. And check out angryamericans.us. It continues to be improved weekly. You can check out the video section for all our one-minute videos, and you can share them on social media. You can share them with your friends and introduce them to the show. You can let them know about Rob Sarah and about Scott Campbell and about all our recent guests. Uh, please keep the feedback coming. I see you, I hear you, and I'm with you. Next week, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but we've got someone who is also incredibly creative and a true leader and an awesome human being. And the week after that, someone who's really, really going to blow your mind. So stick around, tell your friends, and follow Angry Americans on all your social media platforms. And remember... It's okay to be angry. And no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Stay vigilant, America. And you know what? A free bottle of Sarah Jessica Parker's new wine to the first listener who gets an Angry Americans tattoo. I know one of you is going to do it. Somebody likes wine that much or has that many tattoos that no one will notice. But the challenge has been issued. Stay vigilant, America. America.